WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Moss versions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So we need to be careful that we don't offer people false assurance of salvation simply because they prayed the sinner's prayer, they walked an aisle, they prayed with mom and dad when they were five years old. I understand parents who want to believe that their children are saved because they prayed that prayer, but if there's no evidence in their lives at all and they're now adults, they don't need to give them false assurance. It's often been said, and I agree, that there are three categories of people who say they are Christians. One is those who have genuinely trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation, but they're not sure of their security. Another is those who have said words that they think will save them, but then they go on living just like they did before, thinking that God is obliged to let them into his kingdom because they said the magic words. And then there are those who enjoy a warm, secure, personal relationship with their Heavenly Father. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher, and we are nearing the conclusion of a series of studies about the nature of the church. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Jesus first introduced the idea of the church in Matthew chapter 16. One of the things Jesus told Peter was that he would be giving to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and that what Peter bound on earth would already have been bound in heaven, and that what he loosed on earth would already have been loosed in heaven. Let's turn ahead now to Matthew chapter 18 for some explanation of binding and loosing. And then Pastor Steve will share with us what binding and loosing have to do with both assurance and false assurance of salvation. Now, the second passage of Scripture is even more helpful than the first, and that's found in Matthew 18, just two chapters over. It's even more helpful, I say, because it uses similar language, and it's, it's in, the, in the general context, and it's written by the same gospel writer. It talks about binding and loosing. Now, notice, chapter 18, we break in at verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now you can see, as I said, that even the language that's used here in verse 18 is similar in that Jesus uses the expression, once again, of binding and loosing on earth what has already, he said, been bound and loosed in heaven. And the context of these words is the church, after going through the painful but loving process of confronting a sinning member who refuses to repent of their sin, now must discipline that member by declaring them excommunicated from the church. This is called church discipline. You put a sinning member out of 
the church because why? Their behavior indicates that they have never been converted. Church membership is for those who have been converted, those who know Christ. This person, after repeatedly being confronted about their sin and hardening their heart, indicates that they are not believers. They never were to begin with. They don't evidence true salvation because they're so hardened. That's why Jesus said they are to be looked upon by the church like someone who is a Gentile pagan and an outcast Jewish tax collector. They were both in that day considered unbelievers and therefore outside of the fellowship of God's people. Jesus is using the word Gentile in the sense of a pagan Gentile and a tax collector as a man who is so corrupt that he couldn't possibly be a believer. Both unbelievers, therefore, outside of the fellowship of God's people. And that's why Jesus said that the entire church had the divinely given right to declare to an unrepentant individual that he was still bound in his sins, meaning that he was lost and unforgiving. And why? Because he was acting that way. Treat him like an unbeliever because they're acting like an unbeliever. And if they're an unbeliever, then they are still bound in their sins. They have never truly been converted. Therefore, they have never truly been forgiven by God. Likewise, the church also has the authority to declare to a repentant individual, someone in the church who you confront about their sin, they humble themselves. They say, you're absolutely right. I was wrong. I I will forsake my sin. I will do what's right. You say to that person, you have evidenced by your actions that you are truly a believer in Christ because you do repent and you do obey the Lord. Therefore, we can tell you based on the authority of Scripture, since you're acting like a believer, we tell you that your sins have been loosed, meaning God has forgiven you. You are a converted man because repentance gives evidence of your salvation. Now, both of these passages of Scripture, the one from John 20 and here from Matthew 18, help us to understand what Jesus meant in telling Peter about his binding and loosing ministry in the church. The Lord was simply telling him that based upon the gospel message of salvation by faith in his finished work on the cross, those that Peter said were forgiven because they had trusted the Lord as Savior, were indeed loosed from their sins. And those, he said, were not forgiven because they had not trusted Christ as Savior, were indeed still bound in their sins. See, it's important to understand, folks, that that Jesus isn't telling Peter that somehow Peter can infallibly look into the hearts of people and figure out who's saved and, and who isn't. No one can do that. No one can do that but the Lord. However, what he is telling Peter is that he has every right, note this, every right to declare what God has already declared about an individual. And what is that declaration? That based upon his response to the gospel, either his sins have been loosed and forgiven by God, or they are still bound and unforgiven by God. That is precisely why Jesus worded his statement the way he did. Notice very carefully the way the Lord's words should be translated from the Greek text into the English. I'm going to read it to you the way it should be translated. In some of our versions, it is. It is like this. And whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. 
I realize in English, these words sound stiff and awkward and unnatural, but the point that they make is critically important. What Christ is telling Peter is that when Peter on earth declares someone either forgiven or unforgiven, he is only echoing what God has already declared in heaven. He's not making up the rules. He is echoing what God has already declared in heaven. In other words, Peter doesn't determine who's been forgiven, but only declares the judgment of heaven based on what? The truth of the word of God. We have a great illustration of this principle in action in Acts chapter 8. I'd like you to see this. Acts chapter 8. The context here is that the gospel comes to Samaria. Samaria was a region in Israel made up primarily of people who were not Jewish, and they weren't full Gentiles. They were kind of a a mixed people. Samaritans came from a pagan Gentile background. They, They intermarried with Jewish people. They had their own unique religious setting that that took some things from Judaism, but some things from paganism. Anyway, the gospel in Acts 8 comes to Samaria, and here we read about a man named Simon, not to be confused with Peter, who also was named Simon, but he is now, this man is Simon the sorcerer who professes faith in Christ. We break in at verse 9. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued on. But note this, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, if the story stopped here, we would conclude based on the information we're given that Simon had indeed become a converted man. However, his behavior, as we'll read further, revealed something else. And Peter is the one who declares with the authority of heaven that Simon has never really trusted Christ. Peter doesn't read his heart, but Peter reads his actions and understands what's going on. Notice as we read on, starting in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Let me stop here and just clarify. When a believer today trusts Christ as Lord and Savior, he receives the Holy Spirit immediately. First Corinthians tells us that. We receive the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into the body of Christ. But what is about to take place here was unique. These people had accepted and trusted Christ, but they had yet, had yet had not received the Holy Spirit because they needed apostolic confirmation. This is unique. This is not repeated. This is very transitory in the formation of the early church. This is a unique setting. So don't read into this and say, well, someone can be saved but not have the Holy Spirit. That would be impossible today. Philip was not an apostle, but he's the one who preaches the gospel. They needed the apostolic verification of Peter 
and John. And so that will help you to understand what will take place. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen, meaning the Holy Spirit, upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began, meaning Peter and John, began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and note this, in the bondage of iniquity, in the bondage of iniquity, meaning that you're still bound by your iniquity. Now, based on on knowing this man's background as a sorcerer and a magician, Peter discerned by his request for power that his heart had never really been changed. He had never really been transformed by the gospel. He he lived by power and attention. He wanted that. He was he was uh, impressed with the power that Philip had in doing miracles, and he hung with him to to see this happening. And then when the apostles came down, he was enamored with Peter and John because whoever they lay their hands on received the Holy Spirit. So he offers them money to give him that same kind of power. His heart had never been changed. He had never been humbled by the gospel. And that's when Peter told him that he was still bound in sin and he needed to repent and experience divine forgiveness. In other words, he told him that he was not a part of God's kingdom since he was still bound or in bondage to iniquity. See, Peter was simply acting on Christ's words from Matthew 16. He was authoritatively declaring to this man, Simon, that he was still bound in his sins because his actions indicated that he had never really been forgiven by God from heaven since he had never really received Christ as his Lord and Savior on earth. I think that illustrates what what Jesus is teaching here. Folks, that is the meaning of our Lord's words to Peter about the actions of binding and loosing. But we need to understand something important. These words to Peter and this concept of binding and loosing wasn't limited to Peter nor was it limited to the apostles, nor was it limited to the early church of the first century. You see, what Jesus taught here in Matthew 16 has some tremendous ramifications as well as implications for each of our lives because this truth applies to us. It applies to us both as individual Christians and as a collective body of believers that make up a local church that is called upon to practice when necessary church discipline. So what are some of these ramifications and implications? Well, take note of this. This is how it applies to us. First of all, we need to realize that that like Peter, we also need to tell individuals with heaven's sanction that their sins have been either forgiven or not forgiven. This isn't an act of judgmental arrogance on our parts. It's not an opinion. People often think that, oh, how can you tell me that I'm not saved? Or how can you tell me that I I am saved? But it's not based on our authority. It's based on the authority of Scripture. See, the Bible 
for a believer is the source of his authority. And since scripture tells us that those who trust Christ as Lord and Savior are forgiven of their sins, then we have every right to declare this is the case. We come along, those who have professed faith in Christ, and give evidence of that profession, and we help them with assurance of their salvation. We can tell them, those who are struggling about are they saved, are they not saved, that based on the authority of God's word, listen, brother, listen, sister, based on the authority of God's word and what you're telling me, if that's true in your heart, then you are a believer. See, in doing this, though, we want to be very careful that we don't go too far because this doesn't mean that we can dogmatically state who's saved and who isn't in the sense that we can see their hearts. We can't see their hearts. We don't know what a person's heart is really saying. So we need to be careful that we don't offer people false assurance of salvation simply because they prayed the sinner's prayer, they walked an aisle, they prayed with mom and dad when they were five years old. You, I understand parents who want, their, want to believe that their children are saved because they prayed that prayer, but if there's no evidence in their lives at all and they're now adults, they don't need to give them false assurance. We heard only last week from several individuals who were baptized that they thought they were saved when they were very young, only to realize that they weren't saved. They were not saved. So we need to be careful we don't give people false assurance. If somebody prays with me to receive Christ, I never ever tell them, well, you are a Christian for sure now. I say to them, based on the authority of God's word, if what you did right here, you meant it, then I can tell you, welcome to the family of God, because God says your sins are forgiven if you have truly trusted Christ. So we have the the right to tell someone that if they have really trusted Christ as their Savior, then they can know for certain that their sins have been forgiven and that they are going to heaven. Why? Because that's what Scripture says. Now, let me show you a passage of Scripture that's important. 1 John 5.13 1 John 5.13 tells us something that many people will say no one can ever know. You can't say this, but we can say this because this is what the Bible says. 1 John 5.13 says this, These things I have written to you. Now let's stop there. What things have been written? John is talking about his letter. These things, this letter I've written to you, this letter we call 1 John because it's the first of three letters. These things I have written to you, who's he writing to? Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm writing these things to you who believe in Christ. Why? Here's the purpose of 1 John. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Is it possible to have eternal life and not know it? Yes. It is possible to know Christ, but not have the assurance of your salvation. This verse proves that. I'm writing these things to you who believe in Christ so that you may know that you have eternal life. Because there were people in the early church who were confusing genuine believers. Now, how can you know that you have eternal life? First John is all about evidence in our lives. John goes through a number of, of evidences and says, in essence, if this is true in your life, then you know that you're a believer. If this is not true in your life, then you still need to be a believer. What are some of the evidences? Well, he says that true believers confess their sin. True believers 
are genuinely sorry and they confess their sin, not because they got caught, but because they have a relationship with God the Father and they are truly sorry when they grieve him by disobeying. That's 1 John 1, 8. If you're not a believer, you don't confess your sin. You don't care about your sin. He says in in chapter 2, true believers desire to keep the commandments of the word of God. Now, he's not saying that true believers always keep the commandments, But he is saying that a true believer genuinely desires as a lifestyle to obey the word of God. Unbelievers don't desire to obey the word of God. Unbelievers don't care about the word of God. We want to obey the word of God to please the God of the word. True believers love the brethren. They want to be around God's people, quirky as we might be at times. They want to be around God's people. They enjoy fellowship with God's people. They love the brethren. True believers also hate their sin. When they sin, they hate it. They practice righteousness. They want to do what's right. If those things, he mentioned some more, but those are the basic ones. If those things are true in your life, then John says you can know for certain that you are a genuine believer because that's the evidence of a transformed life. If that's not true in your life, you don't care about obedience. You don't confess your sin. You don't particularly want to be with God's people. You don't, uh, you don't hate sin in your own life, then don't deceive yourself. You're not a believer if that's your lifestyle. Now, when, when we tell, tell people you can know that you have eternal life, it is often the response of people, especially those in religious circles, but who aren't saved. Well, nobody can know that they're, they're really saved until they die. Nobody can know they're going to go to heaven until they die. That's not what John said. John said, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know now if you have eternal life or not. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can know that you have eternal life. There will be divine evidence in your life. So I think that's a very important application that emerges from the truth about binding And loosing, we have every right to come along to struggling believers and say, you know what, you don't need to struggle in this area. You can know for certain. There are people who have trusted Christ and yet somehow they're confused. They think they have to, uh, they think they can lose their salvation. We can come along and say, you don't have to fear that. Let me show you what scripture says. These things are written that you may know you have eternal life. Now, a second ramification and implication that emerges from our Lord's words to Peter about binding and loosing the sins of people is that Christians should never be hesitant to tell an unbeliever that they are not a part of God's kingdom. We can tell believers they are, but we also can tell unbelievers they are not. I realize that that's sometimes awkward and uncomfortable, but they need to know this. They need to know this. And I recognize that there are some believers who have very difficult times saying that someone is lost. There are some Christian leaders who appear on such shows as Larry King Live, who never want to admit that anyone is lost, lest they come across as sounding self-righteous and judgmental, negative, narrow-minded. And so they'll say, well, I I can't really say that, Larry. I I can't say whether someone is saying, sure you can, sure you can. The Bible tells us that those who have not trusted in Christ as the God-man and his finished work on the cross are lost and on their way to hell. You didn't make that up. That's what the Bible says. 
Notice how dogmatic scripture is about this. This There are no gray areas when it comes to this. We do not and we cannot know the heart of someone who professes to be a Christian. But we do know from John 3.36 that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. What an interesting comparison. The opposite of belief is disobedience. So while we cannot know a person's spiritual condition, there is enough evidence visible in the lives of people we are reasonably close to for us to be able to either comfort or caution the people we care about. When done from the right heart, it's not judging, it's loving discernment. Pastor Steve Kreloff is nearly finished taking us on a grand tour of something we don't often think about, the nature of the church. Pastor Steve has been serving since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more information about Lakeside, visit lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. To catch up on previous broadcasts or to find out about giving to help us stay on the air, go to our website, firstbyverseradio.org. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. Last week, in the small group I facilitate, the subject of church discipline came up. A man who's new to our church but has been a Christian for many years commented that he'd never attended a church that ever disciplined anyone for unrepentant sin. But most of us spoke up in chorus, saying, I have... Church discipline.